This episode includes some discussion of suicide, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. Warren Irwin has been interested in gold mining since he was a kid. For a few years, he grew up in Timmins, Ontario, one of the country's great mining towns. And when he was just five, he went to visit one of those mines. I remember the massive trucks and the incredible sounds of the crushers. And so that gave me the first taste of mining and and especially my interest in gold. 25 years later, he was working as an investment director at Deutsche Bank Canada when a colleague of his told him about a small Albertan mining company called Briex. He said, Warren, you know, you really got to look at this new situation. The company said they were sitting on a substantial gold deposit in Indonesia, a country that Warren had spent some time in. Their stock had gone from being worth pennies to around $13 a share. Warren thought Briex would continue to go up, so he took it to his bosses at Deutsche Bank to see if it was something that they wanted to put money into, but they turned him down. And uh, I said, okay, I don't mind you turning me down on this one. You might think it's a little too aggressive. You're, you know, Indonesian, a lot of people are familiar with it. It's early stage, and I fully understand that. I said, but would you have a problem then if, if I traded on my personal account? They said, well, knock yourself out. He began investing big sums of his own money into the company. So much so that he figured it would only be prudent to go to Indonesia to see the site for himself. Warren first met up with some of the key players in Briex in a small oil town near the mine site. I went out and had some drinks with some of the guys and played pool that night. And that's where I ran into the head of the assay lab, John Irvin. That's the man who verified how much gold was contained in the samples that were being dug out of the ground. He looked really nervous. And I said, John, you look really nervous. There's gold there, isn't there? And he almost jumped out of his skin. That was really my first sign that, uh, hmm, that was interesting. It's not a usual reaction. Despite this strange response, Warren headed out the next day to visit the mine site. To get there, he had to take a helicopter. There I was, sitting in a Huey, choppering in from San Marinda into the site. The flight started out by taking him over the lush Borneo jungle with its ancient mangrove trees teeming with life. They flew 250 meters off the ground, not nearly as high as a plane, but still high enough that if anyone was to fall out, there'd be no chance of survival. The jungle morphed into vast swaths of land that had been clear-cut, stump after stump, the only reminders left of the rich ecosystem that had once been there. They did safely arrive at the mine site, and it was there that Warren got to know Briex's two main geologists. First, John Felderhoff, a buccaneer prospector originally from Nova Scotia, and the second was Mike de Guzman, a Filipino geologist who led a team of other Filipino geologists. And together, the two of them were responsible for discovering the gold in Indonesia, which was quickly looking like a significant deposit. Warren didn't come away with a great impression of either man, but he returned to Canada reasonably satisfied that Briex was worth continuing to invest in. And as the months went by, that bet began to pay off in a big way. Everyone's talking about Briex, a small Calgary mining company that struck gold half a world away. And even though the mines are in Indonesia, a lot of the wealth is right here in St. Paul. Traders at the Alberta Stock Exchange say they've never seen anything like it. 
from a low of $1.90 to a high of $170 in just one year. And I made millions, I made millions for the bank, but uh, those were the days, it's just, it was our, our Bitcoin, and we were having lots of fun with it, and there was lots of money being made. Soon, Briax was front page news, and with every passing month, the gold that was estimated to be under the ground in Indonesia climbed higher and higher and higher, until it was believed to be the largest gold find in human history. They were saying, these guys are finding so much gold, we're concerned about what it's going to do to the price of gold. But all of that changed in an instant. Well, I got woken up in the middle of the night by a dear, dear friend of mine, John Macbeth, who worked for, at the time, uh, Far Eastern Economic Review. He says, Warren, de Guzman's dead. I think they've killed him. Mike de Guzman, the Filipino geologist who had helped discover the biggest gold deposit in history, had allegedly fallen out of a helicopter. At first, it was reported as an accident, but Warren Irwin knew that that couldn't be true. He had flown in that exact same helicopter on the exact same route. I knew the pre-flight inspection and how diligent the engineers were, so I knew something was up and something was very wrong. And that's when Warren Irwin knew that he had to get out of Briex. People don't just fall out of helicopters for no reason. He sold his shares and began to short the stock. And Warren had made the right decision. There was no gold under that site in the Indonesian jungle. It had all been a mirage. Briex is not only the biggest fraud in the history of mining, it's one where everyone got away with it. But two decades later, there's still one question lingering over the whole Briex affair. Did Michael de Guzman, the man who disappeared out of a helicopter, actually die? Or is he still out there somewhere, enjoying the spoils of one of the largest scams of all time? Before Bitcoin, there was Briex. It was a national obsession that made millionaires overnight. But just as quickly, all of that money vanished into thin air. It was a wake-up call for the mining industry. How could so many savvy people, including investors, government officials, and the CEOs of the world's biggest mining companies, be duped in such an extravagant way? And why is it that no one was ever brought to justice for the company's many crimes? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. The gold letters still glitter on the Briex building, but that's all that was shining for the company today as reporters and photographers waited for an explanation. A receptionist inside struggled to handle all the calls, but there was no sign of Briex president David Walsh. Just this terse news release with an astounding announcement. There appears to be a strong possibility that the potential gold resources on the Busang project have been overstated because of invalid samples. I look back at Briex and think, I can't believe that actually happened. 
I'm Andy Willis. I'm a columnist and reporter at the Globe and Mail, and I've, I've been at the Globe and Mail since 1995. I was one of the several reporters covering BREX back in the day. He's also the co-author of The BREX Fraud, which he co-wrote with Douglas Gould. Andy Willis remembers when BREX was first starting to get the attention of newspapers like the Globe and Mail. BREX got on our screens because it was one of the great successes of the Canadian junior mining industry. There is any number of tiny little junior Canadian companies, you know, a geologist with a dream and an ability to get into the jungles or into the Arctic and find these incredible deposits. That's just the way the mining industry works. But these renegade geologists need money in order to set up exploration and drilling operations. And so they rely on stock promoters to find them investors. So a stock promoter doesn't really have a background in geology at all. What they are doing is being the middleman to find small investors, like mom and pop investors who put in a few hundred bucks or a few thousand bucks, up to the smaller mutual funds and the insurance companies and the professionals who, again, will put money into a a mining stock in the hopes that it comes in big. In a way, it's not a lot different than playing the ponies in that when you do get a winner, it's a big winner, but most of the investments you lose money on. There's always been an element of the Canadian junior mining market that's dodgy, but that every so often a big fine comes in. That marriage of stock promoters and geologists is central to how junior miners operate. And Briex was no different. At the heart of the company were three men. First, there's David Walsh, the Calgary-based stock promoter. David Walsh was this, I kind of described him as a 'er ne'er-do-well. My name is Stephen Ewart. And I was border with Calgary Herald in the 1990s, covering uh, the part of the business beat there. There's a guy from Montreal, a stock promoter, had kind of worked his way up and arrived in Calgary in the 80s in the kind of that up and down of the oil world and uh, had done some kind of raising money for smaller ventures and oil and mining and, and a few other things. Walsh was a genial guy, though a bit of a lush kind of a pudgy kind of guy, you know, maybe the shirt doesn't fit as well as it did earlier, you know, kind of a little tight in spots. And then kind of a face weathered by smoking and maybe some drinking, some hard living over the years. There's a bar that's still here in Calgary. At the time when he was promoting the kind of other junior riding stocks, it was called, I think, the Greenhorns. He was kind of a regular, you know, this is a word of mouth handshake type of town. And in that era, it especially was By 1993, David Walsh was at the end of his rope. None of his recent business ventures had paid off. He was awash in credit card debt and was forced to declare bankruptcy. But he was able to hold on to one little asset. It was his company, BREX, which had a listing on the Alberta Stock Exchange. Walsh had founded BREX in 1988, and while it owned the rights to a few prospective gold claims in the Northwest Territories, none of these had any real value. But there were always gamblers willing to put a little bit of money into penny stocks just to see if they'd pan out. So by holding on to that stock listing, David Walsh still had a little bit of hope that something would come along and bring him the riches he always felt he had deserved. And that something eventually did come in the form of David Walsh's old friend, John Felderhoff. John Felderhoff is one of the central players here, probably the most important character here. Felderhoff was born in the Netherlands, but moved to Cape Breton, Nova Scotia as a teenager. He got a geology degree at Dalhousie, and like many ambitious Canadian prospectors, Felderhoff went abroad to seek his fortune. 
After a brief stint in Africa, he found himself in Papua New Guinea, and it was there that he made a significant gold discovery for the company he was working for. But that was in the 1960s. By the 1990s, John Felderhoff was struggling. So John had, had made a, you know what I think most of us consider okay amounts of money, but he'd been married and divorced a couple of times and, and hadn't done a great job of shepherding his wealth. Felderhoff had a gruff manner and was pretty proud of the 14 times he'd contracted malaria. And he was still out there looking for his next big thing, focusing in on Southeast Asia, where he had made his first big find. And it was there, while working for a small mining company in Indonesia, that he met the third integral character in this story, Michael de Guzman. De Guzman was very much John Felderhoff's lieutenant. Mike de Guzman it was Filipino by origin. He was a mining engineer. So he had a track record for working with John on some of these sites, running the drilling, taking care of the technical aspects. And again, a track record for having worked on a bunch of different projects and also a track record for not husbanding his, his money very well. De Guzman had grown up modestly in the Philippines, getting a geology degree and working for the local mining concern. He was by all accounts an exceptional geologist and a solid worker, but he made very little money in the Philippines. Eventually, he was poached by an Australian mining firm to come work in Indonesia as part of the same project as John Felderhoff. The two quickly became friends, but they were both living well beyond their means, especially de Guzman. Though he was already married in the Philippines, de Guzman got married again in Indonesia, and again, and again. When the Reacts scandal played out, we found out that Mike de Guzman did have several wives, none of whom knew anything about one another. He was quite the character that way. Felderhoff and de Guzman had a theory that guided their work, that the volcanic activity that helped form the Indonesian archipelago would lead to the creation of precious metals, especially gold. And they looked to be onto something. In the mid-1980s, Indonesia was experiencing a bit of a gold boom. So Felderhoff, de Guzman, and some of the other Filipino geologists decided to strike out on their own in search of fortune. They staked out what they thought was a promising claim and drilled down into the earth, but no gold. They tried again, and still nothing. So by 1993, all of them were broker than broke. And it was then that these desperate geologists in Indonesia hooked up with a desperate stock promoter in Calgary. John Felderhoff and David Walsh had been friendly since the 1980s. The two of them were drinking buddies. The two of them did know some people in the uh, mining industry who would be willing to put money into projects. Felderhoff told Walsh that he had a site in Indonesia that he thought had some potential. All he needed was $80,000. Walsh agreed to try to scrounge together the money. The site was in a part of Borneo known as Busang. It had some encouraging geological features, but it had already been explored by an Australian mining company that had drilled 19 different holes. They had found negligible amounts of gold. But Felderhoff had studied those results, and he reinterpreted them. To his mind, the core samples dug out of the ground demonstrated that there was one to two million ounces of gold ready for the taking. It was those reinterpreted numbers that David Walsh used to scrounge together the necessary cash. Here's David Walsh speaking in an interview with the CBC in 1997. Briex was a shell of a company with uh, uh, almost uh, non-existent working capital. And uh, uh, I decided to uh, go into uh, Indonesia and, uh, and um, 
that's where we started from. Uh, just an idea, no money, and uh, and a very good uh, geologist. He was a guy that was sort of dogged in hammering this story with individual stockbrokers, with small money managers, and frankly, with all his friends in the bars in Calgary, who he just kept telling the Briac story to and, you know, showing that he was a believer. He was consistently, month after month, out trying to raise money to do more exploration for this this little gold claim in, in Indonesia. It helped that this gold claim was in Indonesia, a part of the world most Canadian investors weren't familiar with. It gave the whole endeavor a little bit of exotic glamour. And even before Briex had dug a single hole in the ground, they were now claiming to be sitting on a $10 million mine. Once they did start to drill, the first two holes came up dry, not a speck of gold to be found. Now, exploratory drilling, especially in a part of the world like Indonesia, can be a pretty expensive proposition. Each of these holes cost tens of thousands of dollars, money that Briex just didn't have to spare. And by the end of 1993, their lease on the land was about to run out. If they didn't find something soon, the site would revert back to the Indonesian government. So in December, Briex drilled two more holes into the ground. And miraculously, just as they were about to run out of money and lose the title to their land, the company struck gold. Briex was saved, and one of the most spectacular stories in mining history had just begun. If the timing of Briex's find seems too good to be true, that's because it was. Today, we know that those last two samples had a little bit of extra gold mixed into them. They call it salting the, the samples. Either they ground up their wedding rings to put that gold in, or they just took gold that they panned from the rivers and threw that into the rock samples that they sent to the labs. And it's one of the oldest forms of fraud in the industry. Martin Frobisher, the English explorer who tried to find the Northwest Passage, had salted worthless rock from Baffin Island with gold to trick the English crown into funding more of his voyages. In the case of Briex, the salting started off pretty modestly. Those core samples apparently showed enough gold for a decently productive mine, but nothing spectacular. But it was enough to bring in more money from investors, enough to keep on drilling. They dug up more core from the ground. Some of those samples showed gold, others not so much. But it was just enough to prove John Felderhoff's theory that there were a few million ounces of gold in the ground that the Australians had missed. And Briex's stock began to rise. It went from being worth pennies to around $3 a share, which is a pretty nice return for the investors who had believed in the company. But by 1995, that wasn't enough. Sure, the stock price was up from where it started, but it was now stagnating. And though there appeared to be gold in the ground, it was still right on the borderline of whether or not it would be economically viable to even dig it up. And so once again, Michael de Guzman and John Felderhoff made a major find just at the moment that they needed it. This would come to be known as the discovery hole. And it appeared to show that Briex was sitting on around 30 million ounces of gold. By October, the stock shot up to $60 a share. And everyone in the country began to pay attention. It's a success story that has surprised even Briex president David Walsh who has barely moved his office out of his basement. I haven't had time to even think about it. Uh, 
Nothing's changed. The only thing's changed is I don't wear a tie anymore. <laughs> no one can tell me to wear a tie. Here's Warren Irwin again, the hedge fund manager you heard from at the top. The atmosphere was tremendous. They were heady times. Lots and lots of money made. And as Briex continued to drill, the numbers continued to climb higher. Soon, it was 40 million ounces of gold, then 50 million. It was increasingly looking like this could be the biggest gold find in human history. Sales guy at our firm was had, uh, I think, just under $30 million worth of stock. The largest personal holder that I was aware of, he had made $80 million. And the press became obsessed with the story. The newspapers were just pounding it, too. Like, it was front page of the Globe and the Post, and they were jumping over each other's to cover it. Here's Stephen Ewart, the former Calgary Herald reporter again. So you had a newspaper war Toronto going on with big business coverage on both sides. So that fueled a lot of the interest in the story as well. So it really became a national phenomenon pretty early on as the stock just started to run and the potential for a Canadian company to be involved in the biggest gold mine in the history of the world. And here's Andy Willis from the Globe and Mail. Every publication wanted to be on top of this. And I guess the, the other thing that we should remember now is that this was just the dawn of the internet age. Big business stories, especially in Canada, were becoming global business stories for the first time. So that that added a new audience and it added a, a new spice to try to report this. Everybody was talking about it and were you in on it, though it was kind of became a phenomenon here. In Calgary, you absolutely had like everybody, were you in on it? It was absolutely the discussion point of the entire city. Everyone was on board with Briex. Well, almost everyone. One day after he returned from his trip to Indonesia to visit the Briex mine site, Warren Irwin had a chance encounter on an elevator. I was going to work one day and I was reading the Financial Post and had a beautiful color photo of Briex on it. There's this old timer on the elevator with me and I was going, oh yeah, look at that, that Briex. He made some comment about Briex and I said, yeah, I just was, I was just there. He says, you were just on site? I said, yeah, I just came back from there. He says, we got to grab lunch. The man's name was Dale Hendrick. He was a, a gruff old man. He was a fixture in the mining business. So pretty serious guy. I knew a number of guys who, who know him. They have various nicknames for him. I think Diane Francis called him the, the old drill bit. Other people called him floppy ears. And when the two of them got lunch, Dale Hendrick laid into Briex. You know, he came up with probably 30 reasons as to why he believed it was a complete fraud. Dale Hendrick had spoken to some of the Australians who had worked the site before Briex. Man, they were telling him, we had all this drill core. We left it in the jungle. It was all scattered by the monkeys and it's all over the place. And magical Mike the Guzman shows up without drilling another hole, reinterprets our results, and they've got two million ounces of gold. They said, this is an absolute fraud. De Guzman's a fraud. This is complete rubbish. And that's what the Australians were thinking. Then there was the fact that Briex was drilling in seemingly random locations. Normally, a company would methodically drill in a pattern so that they could get a good understanding of the geology of the rock formations, not willy-nilly wherever they had a hunch. And Briex wasn't following standard practice when it came to twinning holes. Now, this requires a little bit of explanation, but it's important to understand. Normally, when you drill a piece of core out of the ground, the company would split it in half. They'd send one half to the lab and then hold on to the other half in case the lab results ever needed to be verified by a third party. But Briex, they just refused to do that. 
And that was something that had made even Warren Irwin a little uncomfortable when he'd gone to Indonesia. You know, when I was on site with, with Felderhoff, it got to the point where I actually asked him. And one of the questions I did ask him was, John, when are you going to twin these holes? And his response to me was, uh, oh, Warren, don't worry, in the fall we'll have somebody do that. But that never happened. There was one other suspicious event that Warren thought back to from his trip. Warren and some analysts who were visiting the site were interested in getting a small piece of core that they could take back and test. Felderhoff and de Guzman got into a bit of a huddle and uh, whispered to each other. And then, you know, de Guzman went away and he came back with a bunch of bags of core. And when he got back to Toronto, he sent it to a lab to test for gold. Then when it came back with zero gold in it, I looked at where it came from because it was labeled which hole it came from. And Felderhoff and Guzman were so crafty, they made sure they gave us drill core from a dud hole. So I'm going, why would Mike and John give me core from a barren hole? All of this left Irwin with a queasy feeling. I said to Dale, I said, Dale, so you must be short this stock, right? He says, no, no, I wouldn't be short this stock. It's going way higher. I'm long it. So he knew... Uh, he knew the the, uh, the lifespan of a scam and that uh, he, he knew what stage of the scam we were in and he knew it would be the hype was still on and it would be some time before it blew up. Warren decided to hold on to his stock too, but he did get in touch with a few friends in Indonesia and just asked them to keep him appraised of anything suspicious. Meanwhile, Briex began to encounter some problems. It wasn't that more people were suspicious of the company. It was actually the exact opposite. Here's Andy Willis from The Globe again. So what happens in these situations is the junior companies almost never choose to develop a mine right the way through. They get it, they do the the drilling, they they figure out the geology, they figure out where the minerals are, and then they sell it to one of the bigger players. And that's exactly what happened in Briex. David Walsh and John Felderoff didn't really want to sell, but they were attracting all sorts of attention from the biggest mining companies in the world. Briex was the hottest story in mining. And all of the majors wanted in on it. Here's John Wilson, the former CEO of Placer Dome, a major mining company based out of Vancouver, talking about Briex in a recent documentary. It was one of those projects that started off in obscurity when the whole gold mining industry was looking for a great opportunity and grew and grew and grew and uh, became so big that uh, it was absolutely essential that Anybody in the gold mining business who, who had any real knowledge or ability got involved in it to see if they could get a piece of it. But the company that wanted it most of all was the biggest name in the business, Barrick Gold. Peter Monk had created Barrick starting with some really profitable, really prolific mines in Nevada. And, you know, by using some fairly smart financial engineering and really hiring great engineers, Barrick Gold became the world's biggest player in gold mining. It was, it's a bad pun, but Barrick was the gold standard. But Briex and Barrick had had some bad blood between them. Early on, Barrick had promised Briex $500,000 in funding when they needed it most, but they'd pulled out at the last minute. Now, Barrick wanted this mine, and they had the political muscle that Briex lacked. And as part of that, Peter Monk assembled this all-star board with really well-connected politicians. So the first George Bush and Brian Mulroney were both on the board as advisors. Indonesia at the time was ruled by the longtime dictator Suharto. 
His regime was brutal and corrupt, and companies like Briax were only allowed to operate based on his personal discretion. And Peter was pushing hard with the Suharto regime to be given the right to develop the Briax. He was twisting arms with David Walsh to try and win his way into the inner circle. George Bush Sr. was writing letters on behalf of Barrick directly to Suharto. Brian Mulroney was calling up members of the Suharto regime to try to convince them to force Briex into a partnership with Barrick. And Barrick wasn't afraid to fight dirty. They hired Kroll Associates, the biggest private detective agency in the world, to try to dig up dirt on Briex. Soon, Briex executives like David Walsh were complaining of break-ins and people going through their garbage. And other companies began to ally with Suharto's various children in an attempt to wield political influence. All of this corporate maneuvering just made Briax into more of a media phenom around the world. Everybody was excited. The media was writing about this as a horse race for one of the great gold mines that's ever been discovered. The different companies were competing for it. The governments were all in. And in Calgary, Briax came to be seen as the underdog, a successful Albertan mining company being bullied by big Toronto-based corporations and foreign dictatorial governments. And Calgarians taking a certain amount of pride that, you know, we're getting screwed here by either big government or big miner, you know, and it's too bad for our, you know, little company. By the beginning of 1997, the corporate war was reaching a fever pitch, and the Indonesian government made a final decision. Briex was forced to partner up with a company called Freeport MacMoran. They had an amazing relationship with the Suharto regime, and ultimately, the Suharto regime decided on behalf of the people of Indonesia and the family of the Suharto regime that the best player to develop this would be the local favorite, which was Freeport MacMoran. They were the ones who, who eventually got handed the prize. Had there actually been gold there, Freeport MacMoran would have had one of the great properties in the world. But that is not what happened. The deal with Freeport MacMoran was finalized in February 1997. Some of the shareholders were upset with the deal, believing that Briex had given away too much, but in the end, it was all about to be resolved. And March was supposed to be the time that Briex could finally take a breath and revel in their achievement. Here's Briex CEO David Walsh speaking to the CBC that month. I sit here today with a company that uh, has 45% of probably the greatest uh, gold discovery ever to be, uh, certainly in history to date. And the cash flows from that uh, will be uh, astronomical. There was a quote in a, news, in a magazine uh, um, attributed to me when someone asked uh, the same question, except they said, how many shares do I have? And I said, not enough. The annual Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada conference, the biggest event in the mining calendar, was held in Toronto that March. It's a mix of a networking event, industry gala, and wild party. And the Briexers, they were the kings of the conference. David Walsh, John Felderhoff, and Michael de Guzman were all there. Felderhoff got one of the biggest awards. The PDAC is proud to recognize John Felderhoff as this year's Prospector of the Year. And Warren Irwin says that Michael de Guzman was doing a little bit of celebrating himself. Mike was running around with a bunch of hookers, probably about half a dozen hookers. They were running around the mining convention, big smiles on their face, partying their faces off. But there was a problem. Freeport MacMoran, the company Briex had been forced to partner with, 
had begun to perform due diligence at the site. They had drilled holes but found no gold. They requested a meeting with Michael de Guzman to discuss the results and figure out what the problem was. Exactly one week later, Michael de Guzman boarded a helicopter in Indonesia bound for the Briak site. Mid-flight, the helicopter pilot said that he felt a sudden gust of wind inside the chopper. He looked over and saw that the passenger side door was open and that Michael de Guzman was no longer there. The man who had helped discover the biggest gold deposit in world history had just disappeared from a helicopter at the exact same moment that everyone was about to discover that there was no gold there at all. That is when the chaos truly began. Briex chief geologist committed suicide by jumping out of a helicopter. And then, just days later, rumors out of Indonesia that the gold might not be there after all. The news halted trading on Briex shares at the Toronto Stock Exchange and left the investment community in shock. At first, Briex put out a press release claiming that de Guzman had somehow accidentally fallen to his death. But it wasn't long before a suicide note had been found. Earlier that month, de Guzman had been diagnosed with hepatitis B, a chronic but manageable illness. De Guzman's suicide note claimed that he just couldn't live with himself knowing he was a carrier. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that very few people believe that explanation. After all, this was a man who had four wives who didn't know about each other. The wild speculation started up immediately. It didn't take a millisecond for people to start uh, jumping on the conspiracy theories. I'd say about a second after he hit the ground. <laughs> Warren Irwin was initially convinced that someone from the Indonesian government had arranged to have de Guzman killed so that they could take an even bigger piece of the mine. But then he thought back to those conversations he'd had with Dale Hendrick and to that queasy feeling he'd been suppressing about the whole Briex story. Man, this is not at all right. Dale Hendrick could be absolutely right. This is a fraud. Dale had told me about New Uranium and that scam back in the day. Dead bodies were showing up. And he said, Warren, uh, you know, when dead bodies start showing up, it's not a good sign. A body was found in the Indonesian jungle four days after de Guzman disappeared from that airplane. It was a gruesome sight. It was already significantly decomposed. Wild boars had eaten most of the face and organs, and many body parts were simply missing. And it was right around then that Freeport MacMoran made it clear that they had found little to no gold at the Briex site. At this point, Warren Irwin had sold all of his shares and was begging his friends to do the same. But not everyone listened. Many people were still convinced that there just had to be gold in the ground that this was all some kind of a tactic to push the share price lower. I remember um, that one gentleman who had $80 million personally, he went down with the ship. But I tried my very best, and I pleaded with him to take money off the table, but he was uh, very determined not to. But the greed, once it gets hold of some people, they won't listen to reason at all. The, the power of greed is uh, truly incredible, and I saw it firsthand. While all of this was unfolding, David Walsh was at the Calgary headquarters, seemingly just trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Briex hired Strathcona Mineral Services, a Toronto-based firm headed by Graham Farkerson, who was colloquially known as Dr. Doom, to audit Briex's claims. 
And Graham Farkasen, I think, is was one of these guys who was just legendary for being absolutely above board, beyond reproach in terms of his uh, in intellect and, and professionalism, and then his kind of his standing as well, too, in the community. The day the Strathcona report came out was truly the end for Briex. The RCMP is studying a report which accuses Briex Minerals of a fraud without precedent in the history of mining anywhere in the world. Yesterday, Strathcona Minerals released its independent audit of the Calgary-based company's claim to millions of ounces of gold in Indonesia. The report says Briex tampered with core samples and falsified assay values at its Busang site. It says there is virtually no gold there. That day, dozens and dozens of reporters, alongside Briex shareholders, crowded around the company headquarters to try to get a word out of David Walsh. Stephen Ewart was working at the Calgary Herald newsroom at the time. And someone calls and says that, uh, yeah, David Walsh is at the, the Lord Nelson Hotel. So I jump in my car and I drive down there. And this place is kind of beside the railroad tracks on, in Calgary. And it's kind of this bit of a rundown bar. And I see Walsh. So I walk over to their table and talk to them. And I'm immediately taken aback. But it's Molson Canadian and Coors Light beers all over the table and they're smoking and their cell phones are there and they're just kind of going off. And I sit down and they just didn't look in shock. We used the best. Like, I guess we're going to have to accept that it's not there. Like there's kind of this realization that what happened and are we just, you know, chumps, you know, did we just get played here by our own guys? And they're sitting there with a table full of beer bottles and, uh, and smokes <laughs> answering calls and just realizing that it's all coming down. Every time the door opened in the bar that day, just this eerie light would sort of wash in and kind of just everything felt like it was just some scene out of a movie. As all of this was playing out and criminal investigations were starting up, John Felderhoff, the chief geologist, wasn't in Canada or even Indonesia. He was settling into his new home in the Cayman Islands. Stephen Ewart went down there to try to get an interview. He drove up to Felderhoff's compound. I was in a small little car. He was uh, going out to buy a package of cigarettes, I think, in his SUV. And when he saw me, he sort of swung around and turned back into his, uh, into his compound and never came out. I came back around and his daughter came up in a car with her giant Australian boyfriend. I thought he was going to kill me. So... <laughs> I was very nervous at that point. And she said, you know, keep away from our family. And my, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. So that was that. Briex would go down as the biggest fraud in the history of mining. At its peak, the company was worth around $6 billion and claimed to be sitting on more than 400 million ounces of gold. To put that into context, only 2.4 million ounces were dug up during the entirety of the Klondike gold rush. Many investors lost everything they had. I watched people get wiped out at Briex. I watched people I knew committed suicide. And people were, uh, I don't know what the last body count was, but there were quite a number of suicides because people lost everything. David Walsh died of a brain aneurysm a year later at the age of 52. The RCMP refused to press charges against anyone in connection to Briex. But in 1999, John Felderhoff was charged by the Ontario Securities Commission with insider trading and issuing false press releases. 
Felderhoff is being tried in this courtroom on four counts of insider trading and four counts of issuing misleading or untrue statements about Briex's gold deposits. Felderhoff was last seen at his luxury home in the Cayman Islands, and Canada does not have a treaty to extradite suspects from that country. The legal proceedings lasted eight years. But in the end, John Felderhoff was acquitted. He died in 2019. It continues to be an incredible shock to me that no one's ever been successfully charged with anything here. The fact that this crime went unprosecuted is astounding and a bit of an indictment of the Canadian justice system. But there's one big question that still lingers over the whole Briex affair. Did Michael de Guzman die that day he disappeared from a helicopter? Was that his body that they found on the jungle floor? I've always believed that Mike de Guzman had the brains to stage his own death. If you think of a part of the world where you could buy a cadaver for minimal price and throw it out of a helicopter, it'd be Indonesia. Warren Irwin doesn't believe the story for a second. I saw the guy with all the hookers, you know, just before he uh, allegedly committed, you know, suicide. He was having way too much fun. And this guy was so smart. When that body was found in the Indonesian jungle, it didn't have a face, making identification difficult. Most of the teeth were missing. By the time it was flown to the Philippines, it had no organs, no brain, no genitals. Attempts to identify the body using fingerprints came up with contradictory results. And in his suicide note, de Guzman had asked that his body be cremated. And that's despite the fact that in his later years, he had converted to Islam, which strictly prohibits cremation. And then there are the stories. To this day, people claim to run into Michael de Guzman on a fairly regular basis. I was speaking with the president of a mining company, and um, he said, oh yeah, I was in um, Manila having lunch with a bunch of geos, and this guy walks through the restaurant, all the geos stood up and started giving him standing ovation, clapping. And he looks at him, you know, gives a little nod, a big smile, and leaves. And he goes, well, who was that? That was Mike de Guzman. And that was like uh, two weeks after his alleged death. And at least one of Michael de Guzman's wives has reported hearing from him indirectly. Shortly after his death, one of his wives in San Marino, she got a big cash transfer. And then uh, a few years later, she got another cash transfer, and it was all from Citibank Brazil. And then at one point, de Guzman phoned the home, and his cleaning lady picked up the phone, and she was a you know, solid, you know, religious woman. And hearing a voice from the death, like she just thought a ghost was calling her, and it freaked her kind of out. De Guzman, like David Walsh and John Felderhoff, had sold millions of dollars of his shares in Briex before the fraud was revealed. And remember, this wasn't some of the run-of-the-mill deceit. Strathcona called it the biggest fraud in the history of mining. The fact that that highly intelligent individual wouldn't have some sort of an exit figured out just doesn't make sense to me. So I don't know who's, who got cremated, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't Mike. There's one little detail that sticks out to me. Mike de Guzman had been an avid skydiver for years. It was one of his biggest hobbies, but eventually he stopped and he told his sister he quit because he didn't want to die with his body splattered on the ground. (laughs) 
there's never been quite anything like Briex in the history of mining. It was a fraud that played out on a global scale. It was really something to watch and, and to be part of. Canadian regulators did make significant changes to prevent another Briex, but junior mining still has its dark side. And to this day, no one has faced any legal consequences for the crimes perpetrated by the company. Some of the Filipino geologists who are alleged to be part of the salting operation are still working in the mining sector in the Philippines. You can easily find them on LinkedIn. Of course, they don't list Briex on their CV. Nobody's been brought to justice in 25 years on a five-plus billion-dollar scam. Don't go robbing a corner store in Toronto or uh, you'll get locked away, but over a $5 billion scam, you're good to go. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Andrew Willis, Stephen Ewart, Jennifer Wells, John Macbeth, Richard Behar, Peter D. Findlay, Vivian Danielson, Paul Waldy, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Dami Lola Oname. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 